Hey Coconuts, today in TFC Stock Geek Up, we're going to explore the largest buy now, pay later platform. This listed in the markets and they have recently been acquired by Square. In other words, after you listen in and you really want to get some exposure to this company, you can only do so by owning Square, right? So it is what it is, which is why I wanted to focus on the future of consumer habits, right? Buy now, pay later as a consumer trend going to the future, the kind of credit situation in such an arrangement and also the synergies that it has after merging with Square and, you know, how can that really make them much bigger, both Square and itself, right? So that is the kind of future that we're going for. And for all of you that don't know yet, you know, Square is one of the largest payment ecosystem out there today. So joining me to geek out on this company called Afterpay and the future of Square is T Ling, right? AKA T and he runs Heritage Fund, which manages family wealth. And he's also a bottom up kind of stock picker where he picks from the ground, look at the fundamentals, but he has changed his view from value, deep value all the way uh, more towards the kind of growth centric ideas, right? So we will be doing an episode with him on Chills with TFC. So if you have not followed us on our other podcast or our YouTube channel, please, you know, just kind of check out all the other stuff if you have not yet, right? So to kind of see his shift, why from deep value, you know, all the way to growth as a company, right? And so after merger, Square will be his largest position, you know, at some point in managing the whole company's capitals, right? So let's uh, try to understand a little bit more about where he sees things and the future of Afterpay. For your reference sake, this episode was recorded on the 24th of October. I decided to put it earlier, right? Because, you know, they merge already, ma. <laughs> Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Join our Telegram group for further discussion. Let's geek up. Okay, so we're back with another episode of TFC Stock Kickout, and we're with T today. Does everybody call you T? Uh, yeah, everyone just calls me T. Um, after studying in the UK, uh, the British people can't really pronounce Chinese names, so <laughs> I just cut it in half. So and, and it just stuck that way. It's much easier as well. Mm -mm -mm. I mean, T is a thing with them, right? So it is what it is, right? So yeah, yeah we we we're in the house today together with T, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, this company that is uh, supposedly very big part of your portfolio position, and uh, is this company called Afterpay? Yeah, I mean, it it got bigger, especially after Square bought it out. So mm. I mean, uh, we were both shareholders of Square and Afterpay. We liked both companies. Um, both companies combined together now. Uh, I, I do like it but more. I, I mean, I, I think Afterpay makes Square much more complete in certain sense. Um, so yeah, it, it's probably the biggest position now if you actually consider Square and Afterpay together. Nice. So like, tell us more about like Afterpay. I mean, it's not the first payment companies that we're talking about in the space. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts about it? What do they do? How does it work? Yeah, all that jazz. So I mean, Afterpay, it's more in the buy now, pay later industry. Uh, I, I do believe that, you know, this buy now, pay later, it's still in, in, in its infancy stages in Singapore. We don't actually see it that prevalent yet as compared to the West. Um, Afterpay actually started out in Australia. It's probably the number one buy now, pay later company in Australia and they have actually expanded to US as well. Growth rates there have been tremendous. It's been great. Um, of course, there's more competition in US as well. There's other names like Klarna, which is a Swedish name. There's Affirm, which is backed by GIC. 
Um, and I, I do believe that there'll probably be other names out there as well. But yeah, that, that's essentially the whole buy now, pay later. It's a new trend. It's a new fundamental shift um, that I actually do see happening, but probably not really happening as fast in Singapore. Uh, and I guess, you know, Singapore is a small country. Um, things don't happen as quickly. And I mean, if you look at our STI, uh, things do move quite slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, fair, fair. Okay, so so um, what about buy now, pay later that you think it's interesting? I mean, for a lot of retail investors, right, as a consumer landscape, when they look at it, it's just like, well, you know, you, you get to buy things earlier and then you cut it up into a few payment chunks. You know, but as an investor, like what's so exciting for buy now, to pay later? So I mean, buy now, pay later in, in, in layman terms that what we actually understand, it's like installments. You know, you buy a house in installments, uh, if you go to Harvey Norman, you go to Courts, they do have these kind of installment plans, interest-free, allows you to split up the payment over uh, X amount tranches, and you can actually collect the, the um, your product at the onset when you actually make the first payment. Um, so, so that's essentially the same thing. But what's really exciting me is that I, I do believe that there's actually a shift in mindset. People are becoming, or rather the younger generation, which is the target audience of Afterpay, and many of these buy now, pay later companies, um, this younger generation, if we actually understand them, there is actually a shift in the mindset. So the, the shift actually is not just about buy now, pay later. So buy now, pay later, it's like any other installment plan. But I think fundamentally, what I'm actually looking is the shift in spending mindset, which makes me more comfortable with Afterpay. So I mean, if Afterpay doesn't have this shift in the spending mindset, I'll be quite worried because people will probably be spending on Afterpay if they have actually maxed up their credit cards and all that kind of stuff. They want to turn to alternative sources of lending, hence they'll turn to Afterpay. And you, you'll probably see high credit risk um, people shopping on Afterpay. But because of the shift in spending mindset for the younger generation, it, it makes me more comfortable with Afterpay that, hey, you know, people, the younger generation shopping on Afterpay is not that high credit risk. They actually have the cash in the bank balances. Um, but because of the shift in the spending mindset, it, it's safer. The, these people are much safer. And if we look at the default rates of um, Afterpay, the people shopping on Afterpay, the default rate um, as of last fiscal year 2020, it's only 0.85%. And, you know, in a lending business, it's normal. I mean, you cannot say that you have 0% default rates. Even our banks have a certain amount of default rates, otherwise known as non-performing loans. And our Singapore banks, our non-performing loans, which is one of the lowest um, figures already, it's about 15 to 1.6%. So for Afterpay, it's 0.85%. I think they're doing way better. It's almost half of our local banks. I'm not too worried. And like I said, I have actually looked at the statistics, how things have actually been shifting in terms of the spending mindset for the younger generation. Um, it, it makes me more comfortable investing in a company like Afterpay. Yeah. So what, what is this shift in spending mindset? Like where, where were we and you know, where are we going towards? How, is it, how has it changed? So I guess maybe let me give you some experience, uh, my own experience. I studied in London and when I was spending my time in London, I, I didn't have a credit card. I only use a debit card and most people in London actually use a debit card. And to me, I was fine with it. You know, how much cash I have in my bank, I spend based on my means. I don't overspend. And 
I, I felt it was safe, you know. I, I won't accidentally spend too much um, because I know roughly how much I have in my bank account. If it the, the, the card doesn't cross, it means that the amount is too large for my bank account to actually handle. And, and I like the concept of the debit card. When I moved back to Singapore, um, most people I know in Singapore uses a credit card. But, you know, I was like, hey, you know, why should I get a credit card when the debit card is actually serving me fine? Um, so I continued using the debit card. The only reason why I decided to get my own credit card was because of the entire miles game. I wanted to collect miles, uh, earn the miles, to actually redeem for <laughs> business tickets, uh, which I guess most is another trend. Uh, but we will not talk about that trend. But um, it, 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 that is the whole reason why I got myself a credit card. And even though I got myself a credit card, I only have one credit card until today. You know, as compared to my parents, I remember going out shopping at a certain mall. You have to use a certain credit card because on weekends you get more points, more bonus points. <laughs> um, you go to certain restaurants. Um, you have to use a certain credit card because there are certain privileges and all that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't want all of that. To me, it was a huge hassle. You know, having to remember which card to be used at which mall, which day, um, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I didn't want all that hassle. To me, the only reason why I got a credit card was for the miles. So essentially, I just get the best credit card, um, which gives me the best mile conversion. Um, but, but I thought that, you know, maybe this thinking was only um, isolated for myself. You know, with, with value investing, that's one thing I've learned that it, your kind of thinking is probably a bit more unique. You do not actually um, represent the entire population or the mass population. So I thought maybe this thinking of mine was exclusive in, in some ways um, to myself. But it's only after hearing my wife tell me about her friends in, in Australia, how, you know, her friends were spent buying clothes, uh, buying undergarments and all small ticket items but paying in installments. And my first response was, is your friends so, you know, uh, overspent? Have they maxed out all their credit cards that they're so desperate that even clothes, small ticket items like $50 have to be paid in installments? Because, you know, as Singaporeans, the only time we hear this word installments is probably when we buy big ticket items like a car or a house. We only pay that in installments. So, so I, it got me started thinking, very, very curious. I started looking into the industry and I was like, hey, you know, after looking at the numbers in terms of why I talk about the, spend, the shift in spending mindset, I, I realized that this thinking of mine, liking to spend on the debit card, only wanting to have one credit card, it was not exclusive to myself. The younger generation in Australia, in US, and this research was actually based in the US, was that the younger generation actually don't like to spend so much on credit cards. Only 33% of them have actually a credit card. And more of them are spending on debit cards. And even though they might have a credit card, they only have one credit card. And this is the shift. You know, the credit cards per generation, per person, has actually been decreasing by each generation. So I was like, yeah, you know, I, I can actually relate to this. I understand why. I also do like spending on a debit card, but because of the mouse game, I, I got myself a credit card. And I, I could relate to this. And you know, Looking out the research, reading up, um, you know, surveys that these researchers have actually done, interviewed these younger generation. The reason why the younger generation are more wary when it comes to credit card is because they have actually seen their parents go through the global financial crisis. And they, they could actually see firsthand the detrimental effects of using credit and too much credit 
So it, 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 psychologically, I guess, it affected them to the point whereby they prefer to just use debit cards more and more. So it, it's these shift in spending mindset. And, you know, sometimes talking to my, some of my friends here, I, I don't know about yourself, but, you know, your, your, even your taxes, your income taxes, the Singapore government allows you to pay via gyro uh, over 12 months or at one shot. And I do have some friends who actually pay over 12 months. Not that it really? makes them... Yeah, yeah I, I, I do know of people who actually do that. Even to the point of, you know, credit cards, there's a date due by. They will actually set that payment to be that date due by, even though it is five days later, 10 days later, they will do, actually do that. Not that that cash sitting in a bank account would make you huge amounts of money. In, in certain sense, that working capital is not going to change anything. But it's just more of a mindset that, hey, you know, if I can keep it in my bank account, why not? Why should I hand over the money, even though I have the money, over to the banks or over to these merchants so quickly, you know, when I can actually just keep some spare cash in my bank account. And that's essentially that shift in spending mindset I'm actually talking about. So the people shopping on these buy now, pay later platforms, they're not high credit risk. You know, if we understand this shift in spending mindset, we'll realize that individuals shopping on these platforms are actually of a lower credit risk. That is interesting. So so essentially buy now, pay later is a, is a pseudo credit structure, right? It's like, very installment yeah. basis, and you know you're not you're not you're not really loaning anything, and you're you're just make you're just splitting up your payment, right? And and in your view, it is challenging uh, the credit card dominance out there in the market, and you know this is a dynamic shift in how people use their money. So I mean, these buy now pay later platforms, um, you have the option. You can either link it to your bank account, you can link it to your debit card, you can link it to your credit card. That that, that it, it's not exclusive to payment via debit cards or bank account only. Mm. But because of the shift in spending mindset, uh, it is essentially just making me more comfortable, making me understand that, hey, you know, these people spending on these buy now, pay later platforms, they are not of a high credit risk. But okay. if there is no shift in spending mindset that, you know, people still love shopping on credit cards, they could easily just link their buy now, pay later platform to their credit card. And, and that's a big problem to me that, you know, people are paying in installments and not just pay, are they paying in installments, they are using credit, they are borrowing money to actually pay in installments as well. Um, that's a huge problem to me. Uh, but because that's why I say that this buy now, pay later, it's also riding on another fundamental shift, that shift in the spending mindset, which makes me comfortable with the buy now, pay later platforms. Nice. Okay, so, so what is the buy now, pay later business? like for these companies? How do they make money? What is their model? So each company, each buy now pay data platform probably has different um, revenue models. I can only tell you about Afterpay. I've not really looked at these other companies. And to be fair, you know, when I, we invested in Afterpay, all these other buy now pay data platforms were not listed yet. So there, there was not much of a comparables back then as well. <laughs> but for Afterpay, uh, I, I thought their revenue model actually makes a lot of sense. So you think about it, for credit cards, they only make the real money when you don't pay up. By come end of the month, you don't pay up, that's when you know, they'll charge you really, really high interest rates, and that's when they really make their money. And to me, that model doesn't make sense. You know, that there's a huge irony there where there's a huge conflict of interest. It's the same way as a hospital. You know, you go to a hospital, you go to doctors because you want to get cured. 
but a hospital as a business only makes money if you are sick. So as a doctor, do I actually want to be curing you or do I actually want you to continue being sick? Because curing you essentially hurt my own wallet. But then, mm. you know, um, um, prolonging your sickness and all that kind of stuff <laughs> is going against my Hippocratic Ethics, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so that to me is a huge contradiction in the revenue model. And, you know, one hand you have your ethics, one hand it's your, your money, your income and all. How do you actually balance the two? So for Afterpay, I felt that it was much better. Um, it's more fair. There's no conflict of interest. So there's essentially three stakeholders. You have the merchants, you have the customers, and you have um, Afterpay themselves. Afterpay, so in this whole installments, they don't charge you any interest. It's interest-free. Even if you default on the payment, at most, they'll just charge you a late payment fee, which is a fixed amount, and there is still no interest charge. The real money comes where they actually have these commissions, the take rate, where they actually charge to the merchants, which is 3 to 6%. Um, smaller players pay about 6%, larger players pay, pay about 3%. That's the revenue model of Afterpay. So that actually makes sense to me. So you see, customers, they, they don't get charged all this interest and all that kind of stuff. It's fair to them. Um, for the merchants, whatever the customers actually check out from the merchants, there's a 3 to 6% take rate, which is given to Afterpay. And where the merchants actually benefit from this whole equation is that what research has actually shown, and this has been proven with real-life case studies, people with this buy now, pay later, when you can actually pay in installments, the checkout baskets are actually much larger. So, you know, deducting off your higher take rates as compared to credit cards and all that versus the bigger checkout baskets, net-net, the merchants actually still win. And that's why the merchants are actually winning in this equation. And of course, Afterpay benefits in the sense that they have that 3 to 6% take rates. Nice. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. So, how how are the financials looking like then uh, over the over this period of you investing in them? How have they grown? How have they changed? You know, what what are some of the numbers there? So, in terms of revenue growth, it's about if I remember correctly, about hundred to hundred and ten percent, and that's really driven by the expansion into US. Um, in terms of are they profitable? They are not profitable yet. The Australian segment is already profitable because that has been. Um, been around for a much longer period of time. And of course, COVID definitely helped as well. But because they're actually wanting to expand outside of Australia, they're channeling all their profits into the US to actually expand that market base they actually have in the US. And that's the reason why they're not profitable once again. Um, that's essentially the financials of Afterpay. And of course, now Square has actually bought out Afterpay. So um, we, we, we have to wait till this entire acquisition is over. Um, to actually see that pro forma um, income statement, balance sta- balance sheet statement, and all that account with the two com- companies joined together. What are the other numbers looking like then? You know, from a debt, from you know, what what are the things that you look out for when you're trying to understand this company? You know, comparing we talked about my my previous style of investments pre COVID and the new style that we have actually adapted to post COVID. I mean, we're still going through COVID, but in that sense, post-COVID, there has been a lot of shit changes. Um, we try not to focus too much on the numbers now because now it's really about the quality of the business, the qualitative aspects, the management and all, the business model, does it resonate with us, etc. Um, the numbers, we do look at it, but it's not our main focus anymore. So, I mean, some, some numbers are like, 
I, like I shared with you, you know, the top line is growing 100% plus. Uh, in terms of the leverage and all the debt levels, it's not a huge issue. Um, it's a net cash position. So that's not really a big concern to us. Um, it's still cash burning, but we understand why it's cash burning because they're actually trying to expand the US market. The default rates, which to me in a lending business is probably the most important figure, it's low. It has actually been trending downwards from 2018 to 2020. The default rates have been trending downwards from 1.5%, if I remember correctly, to 0.85%. I don't know what's the new numbers, but it seems like this is actually shifting downwards because if you think about it, not only is there a shift in the spending mindset like I talked about, but this platform, once you actually default on payments, you are essentially locked out of it. You can't continue purchasing. So in some sense, you're, you're weeding out those black sheep. You know, over time, as the black sheep are being weeded out of this platform, what you are left with is more of the good sheep, so to speak. Um, so, so that's why I feel that the default rates will actually be trending downwards. Um, but overall, things have been looking good for the company. Um, I'm not too worried. And it's great, like I said, Square have actually acquired um, Afterpay. Yeah, share, share with me more. Like, why do you think it's great that they have acquired Afterpay? And what is, what is the structure like after acquisition? Um, so it's an all-out acquisition. Square essentially offered shares to Afterpay shareholders. It's not an outright cash um, acquisition. It's a share acquisition. They'll be issuing new shares to actually acquire Afterpay. Um, in terms of the valuations, yes, it was a premium to uh, what Afterpay was actually last traded at. I think it was about 20, 30% thereabouts. Um, in terms of valuations, I, I won't say that I was ecstatic about it. It was not the best valuations. Uh, I, I do believe Afterpay is actually worth much more, much, much more. Um, but yeah, you know, at the same time, I'm a square shareholder. Uh, so I should be, I should be happy that I, I got a good deal, you know, that I, we, we acquired Afterpay at a cheaper valuation. So I don't know whether I should be happy or not happy. Awkward <laughs> but, stuff. Yeah, but like I said, you know, Square, you have the cash app, you have the seller ecosystem, essentially the buy and seller side. But Afterpay... Afterpay is a buy now, pay later product. It's a great product. But you know, as a standalone company, I mean, it can actually exist, um, as we have seen with Affirm, Klarna and all. But as a standalone company, I think there is a certain limitation to it. But if Square actually buys out this product and incorporates it into its buyer's app, seller's app, it, it can be a better company. So that's why I say that it makes Square more complete in that sense when they actually have acquired Afterpay. Um, and, and that's why as a Square shareholder, I'm happy. Um, as an Afterpay shareholder, I am happy as well. And, and that's the reason why we dis decided not to actually sell out our Afterpay position. Um, we, we decided that we will actually accept the Square shares. And that's the reason why I say that the combined version of Square and Afterpay will become the biggest uh, holding within for our portfolios. Nice. Okay, so going forward, Afterpay will be fully owned company in Square and, you know, everybody will be a Square shareholder eventually. Yes. All right. So, yeah. So, okay. So if that's the case, then let's uh, talk a little bit more about the management of Afterpay. Like, who are they? What is it going to happen with them after the acquisition? And, you know, why, why, you, why do you like the um, so the two co-founders, um, there's Nick Mola, I, I can't remember the other co-founder's name, 
Um, but essentially, both of them will actually be joining Square's uh, management. They will still be running Afterpay and all, it, and they will actually be converting their shares to Square shares as well. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's not like the insiders are selling up their shares. Um, these two co-founders are great. If you have actually looked at their history, Nick Mola actually started out selling jewelries online and doing it in installments and all that um, before he actually joined his other co-founder to actually launch Afterpay. And I, I mean, if, if you have read his interviews and all, um, I, I can't remember exactly. Uh, I, I can't give you excerpts of what he said and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I, I remember reading his interviews and there are quite a few if you want to Google it. Um, it's great. You know, he talks about how Afterpay is... Um, he, he wants to make it into this uh, sort of a culture, um, otherwise known as like cognitive reference. And I think he has actually achieved it. You know, in some sense, a product or a service can become a cognitive reference where people say, why not you Google this? Where Google is, in, some, in, in other words, search. Why not you stay in Airbnb? which essentially is why not you travel and just exper- uh, uh, stay with some- in, in someone else's home. Um, these kind of products or services have become cognitive reference uh, where you actually immediately link it to a certain uh, action or what. Uh, for example, you know, when we talk about hot pot, I, I, I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to mind is Haiti Lao. Yeah. So, so there are these kind of cognitive reference and that's what the co-founder essentially wants to achieve with Afterpay. And the guy is really, really young. I mean, he's not an old dude who is, you know, just doing something. He, he is really interested. And to me, when I look at management, I want to see management who have displayed signs of innovation. And that to me means that the company that I'm invested in will continuously be pushing that total addressable market um, that they are actually facing. And with Afterpay, you know, Afterpay first started out as a buy now, pay later platform. But over time, there has been a lot of innovation stuff like, you know, credit cards punish you when you pay uh, late. When you don't pay on time, they punish you. But for Afterpay, they actually will reward you if you actually pay on time. So it's the reverse kind of uh, thing, whereby if you pay on time after a certain number of times, they will actually reward you and say, hey, you know, um, because let's say, you know, it's like a milestone. You play games, you have milestones, and if, uh, each time you unlock a certain milestone, you get extra rewards. And what Afterpay essentially rewards you is like, oh, you can delay your payment by another two weeks, maybe, that you can skip this payment and shift it two weeks later. So these are the kind of rewards that Afterpay actually gives if you keep on unlocking these kind of milestones. As you show that you are a good credit rating uh, individual, uh, your spending limit is also increased as well. So it keeps on rewarding you when you display that, you know, I will actually meet the payments on time. And these are the kind of innovation that I like to actually see happen in a company. And management have actually shown that they have that ability to actually constantly innovate the company. Even stuff like social media, they always engage their audiences, their users and all. And they will ask their users, hey, you know, what is this? What's the next merchant you would actually like to see on our platform? And they'll actually gather the responses of their users. So what actually happened there? And they shared this case study was that um, the users all said that, you know, we wanted to see Lululemon on your platform. And it's actually quite a smart way. On one hand, you're actually engaging with your audience. On the other hand, you're actually gathering real data to actually show to the merchant and say, hey, you look 
my, my customers on my platform wants you to be on our platform. Not only will it mean that your existing customers on our platform shop more, have bigger checkout baskets on when, when you actually come on board our platform, but you get access to this whole new other um, market of audiences who are not shopping with you yet, but it's on our platform as well. So what happened was that uh, Lululemon said that, hey, you know, we, we don't want to be on your platform. After Pay said, sure, you know, we, we won't force you. But the users, <laughs> the customers actually bombarded Lululemon. They kept calling in, asking like, are you guys going to be on the Afterpay platform to the point whereby the service, the hotline staff could not actually do what they were supposed to do. And Lululemon said, hey, you know what? We will come onto your platform. <laughs> That's like the Reddit effect, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody wants it and then it happens. So, so it's these kind of, you know, signs of innovation, the ability to innovate that makes me like management as well. Nice. Okay. But going forward, it will be part of Square. So yes. um, what is the kind of competitive mode that you see in this merger? And uh, are you going to be like, you know, like, it reaffirms your idea of this whole like ecosystem now. What what is the situation with that? Do you think it's it's great to merge, or do you think like you know, yeah? They, they uh, I, I think it's great to merge. Like I said, it makes Square more complete. I mean, at, at this current point in time, Afterpay is growing quite well in the US. But once they get incorporated into Square's platform, you they get immediate access to what Square has actually been building up that. X number of customers, merchants, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you're essentially getting a huge leg up in the US market. They, they could probably reach there at some point in time, but being able to reach there faster, why not? And you know, it's that, that first mover effect. If you are able to actually build out that network faster, I would assume that itself, it's a huge competitive advantage already as compared to, let's say, Klarna, a firm who is actually still out there, you know, burning cash maybe, yeah. uh, trying to actually acquire customers and all. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I agree with you. And I think sometimes it's always great to know when to when to merge, right? When to join forces. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, especially in, a, in an environment where everybody's growing so fast. So what, what do you see the the future of this whole ecosystem, like the new Square together with Afterpay, you know, where, where do you think is the future of, uh, I mean, I think, I think most of us will kind of know the business, uh, but how do you envision their growth trajectory forward? Um, I mean, you know, the thing about these kind of growth companies, and I don't like to label companies, but uh, if, if we have to use these terms like growth companies and Square is one of those growth companies is that, you don't actually know where things will grow into. You just want to be invested into companies where you can see that optionalities. And optionality sometimes is, you know, when management has actually displayed signs of innovation, that itself is a huge optionality to you. Honestly speaking, I don't know where it will grow into, but I know that this new company will have huge optionalities. For example, I mean, you can ask me about Amazon in 2014, 2013. And how am I supposed to tell you that, you know, in 2015, I can envision Amazon coming out with cloud solutions. There will be AWS. I mean, honestly speaking, I'm not Jeff Bezos. Uh, if, if, if I'm as good as him, I have probably started the next Amazon and all that. I, I'm not that. I, I only as allocate assets, you know, invest into companies. And to me, it's about pattern recognition, trying to find certain patterns that make success, successful companies successful. 
And one of that pattern is that I like to invest in companies that has optionalities and it will give you a whole range of outcomes possible. And yes, you know, that's what I'm essentially saying. Square, you know, that new company will have huge optionalities. And over the years, we have actually seen Square come up and innovate many different things. You know, when it first came out, it was just this Square dongle attached to our iPhone. To, to what it is today, where you have the cash app, you have the seller ecosystem, where the cash app is constantly innovating as well, trying to fulfill the needs of your customers, your cash, uh, your, essentially your not your merchants. To stuff like, you know, oh, you might want to do stock trading, you can do it on the cash app. Um, people like crypto, you can buy Bitcoin on the cash app. And, and these are all that kind of innovation, that kind of pushing the, the total addressable market and what I essentially call optionalities. Mm. Are, are, you, are you concerned about Jack Dorsey? <laughs> uh, what are you concerned about? <laughs> the, the part-time CEO here. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, you know, he has managed Twitter and he has managed Square. Both have become billion-dollar companies. And I, I can't complain, right? I, I mean, both of us, maybe, even if we are full-time CEOs, have we actually grown our company to a billion-dollar company? Uh, I, I find that if we have not actually done so, it's a bit presumptuous of us to be saying, hey, you know, you're a part-time CEO. How can this be? Uh, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. But in actual fact, he has actually been delivering a lot of shareholder value back to shareholders. So if he's a part-time CEO and he's doing so well already, I, I can't complain any further. Great. That's a good, clear standpoint because, you know, it's something that people talk about, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So so um, going forward, like, what do you think... Uh, I mean, the modes will eventually become like square modes, right? Where, where it's huge. It's out there. Is there anything specifically you want to add about the modes of uh, the new Afterpay colliding with Square? Um, so I guess a lot of people essentially think that it's a winner-takes-all market. But I mm. don't think there needs to be one winner. Even in the payments industry, which has been around for a much longer time, there's Visa, there's MasterCard, there's Amex, and all of them are actually existing quite well. After that, you have PayPal, you have Stripe, you have Square, etc. And they are actually existing quite well as well. It's not a winner-takes-all market. I think there can actually be a few players. Um, so I'm not too worried that, you know, it has to be a Square take-all or a uh, I mean, Square after pay take or, or a, a, a firm take or Klarna take or I I don't think the market needs to be um, drawn that way. Okay, cool. So then, um, I mean, in closing, you, you've shared a lot about the company. We should definitely do another one for Square yeah, since, <laughs> since it's it's the it's a new merge company. Uh, yeah. Any uh, specific risk factors that you want to point out for our listeners um, when looking at the, the company after pay? Um, the biggest risk factor would probably, and this has been discussed quite long and often, uh, will be the regulatory risk. Because if the regulators actually see Afterpay as a lending platform, like a bank, then you have to actually comply with different regulations. But Afterpay, the management of Afterpay has been fighting this for the longest period of time. And they essentially said that, hey, you know, in a lending business, you're revenue model is actually by making money through interest rates. But we are not making money through interest rates. Our revenue model is really different. And that's the reason why we should not be um, regulated the same way as lending platforms. 
And for the longest time, they have actually been able to actually defend that position. The regulators have not actually come down on them and start regulating them like lending platforms. Um, but that is still a risk. You know, in the future, you never know um, when this could actually happen. Maybe one day when regulators see that Afterpay is huge enough that they want to actually regulate it like a, a lending platform, they could. Um, but we will never know. You know, we can discuss till the cows come home and no one, none of us will actually have a conclusion. Uh, but it's just one of those risks that we are aware of. But if it happens to me, it's we have to just probably um, trust that management would know how to pivot the business. And, and that's the reason, you know, to me, investing all these growth companies, I want to be invested in founder-led growth businesses. Because to me, when the founders actually still around, still actually leading the company, founders are always at the forefront of the business, thinking two, three steps ahead, thinking about what's the potential pitfalls, potential problems that the company will actually face, and how to actually pivot the business as compared to a business that has actually been passed on to the second and third generation. This thinking of ours blends a bit from experience, um, from our own personal family experience, and, and, and that's why it, it resonates with us that, you know, when it comes to investing companies, we want to be invested in founder-led companies. Mm, nice. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of people talk about regulatory risk, but uh, maybe paint me a little bit of color. Like, why is regulatory a concern in, in this business? Um, so, I guess, you know, in a lending business like a bank and all, uh, there are certain licenses you actually require. If you're managing money, you need licenses and all. And when regulators actually come down, scrutinize at you, you, you it will create that extra hurdles. Not that Afterpay cannot overcome these hurdles, but life will probably be much tougher, you know, uh, where there's more scrutiny, you have to report more. Uh, maybe the, the, the government will say that, hey, you know, because you're in a lending business, we want a certain take rate from you as well. And, and that's what happened in China, you know, with and financial. financial. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, when the regulars come in, they say that, hey, you know, it's an unfair model. You know, you're essentially passing on all the risk to the banks where you essentially take that spread and all that. Um, that's not fair. You know, you have to have a bigger share in terms of the liabilities. You have to put more cash up front. Uh, and, and that's the thing about bank. You need to have more um, share capital up front, more working capital needs. Um, and, and that will lock up more cash within the company rather than you could have used that cash for other purposes. So like I said, you know, for Afterpay, maybe they can actually overcome this kind of regulatory risk. But why why go through that has all that hassle, I guess, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so before that, just put the regulator at bay, right? So I think that's the that's the goal. And I mean, that, that's how companies grow the fastest, you know. If, if China on the very, very onset 20 years ago was full of regulations, I, I don't think Alibaba, Tencent, JD and all could have grown so quickly as well. Because you have to be on one hand trying to manage your business. On the other hand, you still have to actually manage all these regulations and all. Uh, it, it makes life tougher as compared to the regulations. It's not actually keeping up with you. And your business is actually growing much faster than the regulations can actually think of what to regulate about you. I know, I know. I mean, I'm not regulated yet, but <laughs> just filing taxes is already driving me nuts. I'm like, my goodness, closing yeah. the accounts and filing the tax. I'm like, ah, guys, so tiring, right? So yeah. I totally hear you on that. Cool. So um, 
I think you shared a lot about Afterpay. Eventually, by the time this goes out, uh, for everyone listening, Afterpay would have already been merged into Square. So if you uh, somehow became interested in Afterpay, then oh, you can only buy Square, <laughs> right? So, and we can definitely have a different, separate discussion about Square and the future, what are the fundamentals of the company, and whatever you. So, uh, in closing, is there any other last words you want to add and share that you think we have not covered uh, specific to Afterpay? Um, probably just one last thing. So Afterpaid focuses more on the beauty and fashion uh, business segment. They, they are not in, you know, oh, you can pay your car in installments, you can pay your house in installments. And they are more focused on beauty and fashion only. And, and that's actually deliberate. The reason why they want to actually focus on beauty and fashion only, because, you know, beauty and fashion products your brand, what brand, what logo they actually put on their website. They want a logo which, in some words, is clean, it's fashionable, it's trending. You don't want to put a not trending logo on your platform, you know. If you are trending, let's say, for example, you're Lululemon. And I assume that you are trending. I I don't really buy Lululemon stuff, but it seems like most females actually like Lululemon. Mm, yeah, yeah, they're still very female centric. Yes. 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 Uh, so, so you know, if you put a, a logo there, which is like, let's say, for example, Sogo. I I don't know, Sogo Metro Robinson. Oh my which, God, Sogo Metro just tells your age, bro. Yeah. So, so <laughs> in, in, in that sense, you know, you you are also conscious as Lululemon what brand you actually want to plaster on your checkout page. You don't want to be putting a brand there which doesn't speak of you. A brand is so out of trend. Like you said, it speaks of your age. You want to put a trending (laughs) logo there. And and that's the reason why Afterpay only focuses on the beauty and fashion segment. And, you know, I I shared this company with my friends, uh, this investment idea with my friends. And some of my friends, the first thing they said that, hey, you know, we can, there's actually a loophole. I just buy the product and I default. I, I just pay that first 25% and I just default on the remaining 75% and I have the product. I don't have to pay interest rates. The worst case is that I don't actually spend on this platform anymore. But that's the reason why they focus on beauty and fashion because the resale value is not huge. You buy a lipstick, you've used that lipstick before, no one is probably going to pay you any amount to buy your lipstick. Um, as compared to if they focus on electronics, electronics have a better resale value because it's more commoditized. Um, you can buy a microwave, you use it one, two times, you can sell it for maybe a 10% discount and someone will probably want to buy it from you. And, and that's the other reason why Afterpay only focuses on the fashion and beauty segment. Nice. Okay, cool. So for every one of you listening in, you should check out the company, read the reports and eventually you should uh, look into Square also. So yeah, thank you T. Thanks for joining us today. Take care. Oh, thank you, Reggie. Hey Coconuts, so I hope you learned something useful today and definitely recognize that investing is a personal decision. We're not giving you any recommendations here, but I'm always happy to geek out with you about different interesting companies and trends for the future. This series has a lot more depth and terms, so if you have any questions for us, do join our community telegram group or DM us on our socials. Link is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. And to stay tuned with what is happening in the markets and in the TFC network, do sign up for our weekly newsletter at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, I hope you have a great day ahead and may you improve to become a confident, insightful and disciplined investor, ultimately creating the life you love while managing your finances well. See ya next week.